Hey everybody, this is Ann Doherty, co-founder, co-owner of Illum Advising and your host of Current, an energy podcast by Illum Advising. Today I'm excited to share a conversation between our colleague, Dr. Deidre Sanders, who is the Senior Managing Director of Energy Equity Research and Impacts, and Paula Glover, President of Alliance to Save Energy. In this conversation, these two amazing and powerful women discuss equity and environmental justice from the point of view of the work that we've done in energy and the work that we have to do in energy. I personally found this conversation insightful, charming, and uh, really just a wonderful jumping off point for the challenges that we're all facing in ensuring an equitable and just energy transition. So with that, I'll let you get to the conversation and um, hope that you learn as much as I did from listening. Hello, everyone. My name is Deidre Sanders. I'm Illum, Senior Managing Director of Energy Equity Research and Impacts. And I'm very happy to welcome into our conversation today, Paula Glover, President of the Alliance to Save Energy. Paula is just a wealth of information, gravitas, policy expertise, um, on all things energy. And so we're going to have, I'm expecting a rather free flowing conversation where energy is on the table in, no, with no boundaries in terms of, of where we take this conversation. It, it, who knows, it might even become combustible. We don't know, we don't want nothing incendiary, but uh, definitely, <laughs> Uh, a warm and um, a gratifying conversation. So Paula, thank you so much for joining us. And just please tell us uh, a few things about your work at the Alliance. Um, why don't we start with a description of your, your position in the Alliance's mission? Sure, and thank you so much, Deidre, for having me. And I love the puns about a combustible and, and warm conversation. Like that didn't totally slide over my head. Um, so, you know, I'm thrilled to be here. My name is Paula Glover. I'm the president of the Alliance to Save Energy. Um, I've been in this role for a little bit over a year. Um, and really the focus, we are a bipartisan coalition of business, industry, consumer advocates, environmental organizations with a focus on energy efficiency and really a focus on federal advocacy around energy efficiency policy. So that's kind of the foundational piece of my work. Um, in this day and time, as we've been talking about rapid decarbonization, um, addressing um, emissions, um, increasing um, energy inequity, um, energy insecurity, as well as energy burden. Um, you know, we at the Alliance believe that we are a really important tool as we start to make this clean energy transition or transition into a different energy system. Um, and so my job really is to ensure that all of our stakeholders, one, understand and see the value of efficiency, 
um, understand um, the opportunities that efficiency can create for job creation, small business growth and the like. Um, and also that, you know, um, we are an organization, we are an industry that provides tremendous opportunity around just jobs and workforce development. Um, efficiency is the largest employer um, in our energy, in all, of all energy sectors, right? We support 2.1, 2.3 million jobs um, in efficiency. And so it's important um, that we get that message out because unlike other sectors of our industry, um, we are the only sector where our jobs exist in 99.8% of the counties in the United States. I believe it's like six counties in the U.S. don't have an efficiency job. So we are, um, I think we create lots of different kinds of opportunities as folks who work in efficiency. Um, and we just want to make sure that people hear that, hear that story um, and that we are thought about as we are developing policy moving forward. Hey, thank you, Paula. And can you share with us, what are the top priorities for the Alliance in 2022? Yeah, so I, I will just share right through 2021, it started um, into 2022. Um, and over the next several years, I think our priorities really will not change all that much. Um, in 2022, though, we're really going to be focusing um, on several things. The first is we now have a lot of money that's going to be pushed out through the Infrastructure Act. Um, as well as some other monies that um, we want to ensure that that money that is earmarked for efficiency programs um, is spent, um, that people understand how they can have access. We understand all the available programs that are out there. Um, and so that's going to be one of our priorities, right? Just ensuring that that infrastructure bill is able to be implemented as seamlessly as possible. Um, and that those people who need those dollars the most, the weatherization dollars and others, um, are able to access them. So that will be one of our priorities. Secondly, you know, we at the Alliance, Ben of 2020 and 2021, um, really did make a decision as a as from my board, as a team, um, to center equity on all of our work. And so what we mean by that at the Alliance um, is several things, right? Um, sometimes you hear people talk about equity and they're really talking about diversity. Um, we are focusing on diversity. That is one piece of our work. So diversity within our team, um, but also diversity on our board um, and being very intentional and deliberate um, around diversity as it relates to not just only race and gender, but for us also geographic location, um, expertise and, and the like. So, um, but also those policies that we are advocating for um, we want to make sure that the things that we are pushing also have an equity component where that works. And so an example um, that I would give is, you know, we support some of the changes in the tax co code that will allow more households to, um, you know, get tax credits for making installing efficiency measures in that home, particularly if it's like things like insulation windows, but also upgrading into um, electric heat pumps maybe, or just high efficiency furnaces, that sort of thing. So that's one chunk of the work as we think about it. But there are a lot of households and people who are homeowners who actually don't um, take, a, who don't itemize their taxes, right? And so if you don't itemize your taxes, then tax credits don't actually work. So we at Alliance now then start to think about what are the other tools that are available to us or the policies that can be enacted to meet the needs of those households. Um, and then finally, we also are thinking about 
um, right? How do we, beyond homeowners, what are the policies, the programs that we need um, to enact and enable so that all consumers not only have access, but are actually are adopting efficiency. Um, so, you know, used to be, even I, we would talk about, we want to have adoption. We would say, we want every household to have access to efficiency. But really, I want them to have access, but I also want them to adopt it. And so um, giving them access is great, un but understanding what is going to pull the triggers to get people to adopt measures, and they're going to be varied by person, community, socioeconomic status, all of that stuff. We at the Alliance want to be able to understand what those levers are and ensure then that those tools, whether that's policy or something else, financial mechanisms, whatever that is required to make that really happen. Um, I'm going to end there because I'll, I'll be talking in circles all day. <laughs> Thank you, Paula. That mm -hmm. is a lot going on. And particularly, I liked how you address the equity concern and how it's going to be considered. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of how the how you think policy is currently centered, and you, you touched on this, do you think that decision makers are giving equity enough attention? Um, and if so, is it substantive? So that's a tough question. Um... I'm gonna say, I think they're doing the best they can and it probably depends on who the policymaker is and then how they define equity in their own minds. Um, you know, I think for me, you know, if we think about kind of how this idea and these conversations around energy equity and justice really started getting centered within our industry, it really was an outgrowth of what happened um, with George Floyd's murder during a pandemic and this big, you know, social justice movement, if that's what you want to call it. Um, but for some, as we know, some organizations and some people, the response to issues around equity was really diversity. And so yes. some organizations said, oh, equity means diversity and I need to focus on diversity. And for others, equity meant something else. Um, and so for us at the Alliance and certainly for me, you know, what I share with you, which was my definition of equity. And so to the extent that a policymaker shares that definition, and that's certainly what I'm endeavoring to do is to get them to share that definition, um, then I think we're doing well. But there may be some that don't share that definition. And so then progress is going to look different for them and what success would be would look different for them. I think that's the complexity around um, addressing equity. Um, but I think that's also a result of us ignoring the inequities for generations and then deciding one day to wake up and say, we're going to solve this problem. So of course, it's going to be even more complex, complicated. Um, of course, we're going to have lots of stops, starts and stops, but more so than that, we also don't have, I think, shared definition or visioning about what this should be. Um, so I, you know, my mind that, that can take you in two directions, right? Nothing happens because there's so much confusion and we can't make a decision or lots of different types of stuff happens. I think we're in a moment where lots of different stuff is happening and we're not gonna really know what the outcome of that is for some time. But what you can also, um, I think, endeavor to do and hope is that we continue to talk about it and begin to measure the things that we're doing sooner rather than later, not measuring 
right? If the goal is 2020, we don't measure, our goal, excuse me, is 2030. We don't measure in 2030. We start measuring in 2023 so that we understand that we're actually going to hit 2030 um, and have the outcomes that we want, or we pivot because we need to, to get there. I'm hoping what I'm saying is making sense, but that's kind of how I think about it. Absolutely. And I would just share that I believe that Illum shares the Alliance's definition of what equity is. It is externally facing. It is how we show up in the world to address these external problems. And I would also say the problems of of, um, inequities and and these disparities. I would also put in a plug for Illum's equity playbook that Ah. goes over some case studies of how Illum is and continues to address equity in our work. And that is really going to lay out for everyone our approach, um, which continues to evolve. But we, yeah. we also want to demonstrate that we are in the conversation. And I think, Paula, that you, you hit on something that's hugely important. And that is sort of these inequities have been right there in front of us the whole time. All of a sudden, it seems suddenly that people have decided to address them. And I think it's a reflection, my, my opinion, I think it's a reflection of the political culture wars that we have going on, where for years um, we had the ascendant, the dominant um, uh, philosophy or understanding of disparities was this was a result of individual decisions. If people weren't doing well, the system was fine. Mm-hmm. It was the people in the system are not taking advantage of opportunities or they have some personal failings or they just didn't work hard enough. They don't, they have a poor work ethic or they made poor personal decisions. Mm-hmm. And that if there were inequities, it was because of individual dynamics and moral failings. Mm-hmm. And now we're looking more in the other direction, saying that we have people working very hard, but they are not getting much out of their work. They're not getting mm-hmm. much benefit for their effort. And so what is it that's going on in the world, in their world, in our society? Mm-hmm. And so their efforts have been blocked, inhibited barriers to success. And and it didn't really matter. I won't say didn't matter, but the level of effort that a lot of people are putting out to achieve and to strive is not being rewarded. And that's Mm -hmm. discouraging not only for the individuals, but it's a loss for our society. Absolutely. That 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 productivity is is lost and that people are discouraged. It's there's no it's not unrelated that we have this opioid crisis in the country. It is not unrelated that we have people that have literally dropped out of the workforce. Um, And if people feel that the American dream is not attainable, no matter how hard they work, that is not good for the economy. And frankly, it's not good for the future of our social cohesion mm-hmm. and ability to move ahead. So that, yeah. that's me riffing on, on what equity means 
in society when we don't get it right. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Deidre. And I think, you know, as I reflect on kind of the pandemic, when the, after the first year, I remember saying, you know, this was like us getting the great reset because we all were had to shut down. It wasn't like some were shut down and everyone else was going. We were completely kind of had to be still in many different ways. And I think it created space. It's a terrible way for it to create space. But I do think um, certainly the, old, the early information we got around the, the outcomes of the pandemic and who was hit hardest really started to create space for these conversations around what equity really means, right? Because you couldn't say, that it was hitting African-Americans harder, COVID, and we were, we were experiencing it differently and harder in community of color, and then decided to say that somehow genetically, that's why we're sicker, right? That's the right, because we already had health data and, and, and doctors who were you know, on television talking about the fact that this is really related to what your overall health is. And what we know about certain communities and their access to healthcare is that they don't have the same level of just good health to, like, to deal with these kinds of things. And what the data showed us is that most of our folks who are either you know, um, essential workers, grocery stores, gas stations, these well-raised jobs are people of color. And, and, they, and, and I think what the pandemic did was create a stillness so that we actually had to hear it. And then George Floyd's murder made it real. Do you know what I mean? Like, because now all of a sudden you have an example that we are all watching. And, you know, in it wasn't it, such distress, I think, created opportunities for us as an overall society, as well as industries, to really learn and watch what was going on around us. So if you think about when Ahmaud Arbery was murdered and when they had Walk for Ahmaud, which was like May 27, 28. Right. But it was really the George Floyd thing that made people really double down as if not that like Ahmaud Arbery wasn't did not create protests because it did. But by that point, now the entire country is shut down and we're all watching this thing. Right. Or we're all hearing about it and there's nowhere to run. And, and right. And um, yeah, there's nowhere to go to, to kind of like deny that this, this is happening. And at the same time, we're in a pandemic and we're reporting about all the inequities and having an opportunity, those folks like you, to tie that story together in a way that's like, this is what we mean when we say that. And I can tell you, I was shocked as Deidre, and I probably shared this with you that summer, but I was shocked the first time um, a leader said something to me about race and said, um, you know, talk to me about systemic racism. I was shocked. And I actually probably thought, think, no, I, I won't say I probably, I definitely thought they were being disingenuous. I definitely thought it was like, yeah, right. Okay, so now you're telling me about <laughs> systemic racism. But what I came to realize as I got to work with this person was that they were completely serious. They were completely serious and really committed and wanted to do something. And so I had to just say, okay, you know, let me just put my cynicism to the side and see what's gonna happen next. And at least in this particular this particular person, a lot has happened, right? So, I mean, it's a terrible way for us to, as another colleague would say, like finally listen to and, and believe what 
you know, I would suggest that black people have been saying for years, but that's what it took. That's what it took. Oh, it's the bodies, bodies, literally bodies in the street. And that is across the world. It's sad uh, that, that that's, that's what it has taken to dispel. Oh, you're, you're just making this up. Oh, you're these, it's not like, these are just individuals. It's not a, it's not a systemic thing. Black people, brown people, you just need to get over it and move on. Um, yeah. Or there, there are plenty of opportunities. I, I guess I can also say it came up in the generation of, um, it's not your color, it's your condition, get a good education, speak American mm-hmm. standard English, um, mm-hmm. you know, assimilate. Assimilate, um, well, what, what, do we, we, what we learned about particularly when we were focused on more and more millennials entering the workforce, um, which was that Gen X, my gen X, my generation of workers, we are the last generation who's gonna assimilate into anybody's workforce. We're it. That's a fact, like millennials are not um, um, assimilating. And it's ironic when, you know, we don't talk about them that way now, but we act as if like, this is a group of people who are 40. Like millennials are actually aren't very young. You know what I mean? So I can remember being like, oh, the millennial, millennial, but it's like, yes, y'all are old now too. We're focused on <laughs> Gen Zs, right? And my son who's 25 will be considered a Gen Z. Yes. And the way that he thinks about work and what he is willing to do and the way that he values money in terms of money valuing, right? Pl- placing that value on his work is based on what he's paid. There's none of that, right? They will take a job that may pay less if they think the job is more valuable for them, right? That they feel better about the work that they're doing. So what I was saying is though that the way that they value work and their work and their time and and how they want to spend that time is just really, really different. And so it creates, I think, an opportunity in our industry and particularly around efficiency um, because our numbers are low to be able to tell a story about the work that we do and how it effectuates this larger narrative, right? So, and and, and if, and, and why I think equity is important for us at the Alliance is that the fact, as I, as I shared in my opening, right? If 99.8% of the jobs are located, right? Or, or wait, we have jobs in 99.8% of the counties across the United States. Those are very diverse communities, right? And those are local jobs. There's not going to be an uh, energy auditor in Madison, Wisconsin, who's rolling out to Newark, New Jersey to do an audit. It doesn't work that way, right? They're going to be local people doing local work. And so if we're talking about um, making huge investments in decarbonizing the economy and our energy system, and I certainly believe, and I believe others believe that efficiency is a big part of that, the only way to make that work is to do that in an equitable way. Right. The only way to really be successful and to get to those goals is to center equity around it, because the minute you leave a block, a community behind, you don't get there. You just don't. Right. Because it includes everybody. And so if you think about the president's state of the union, and he had a line where he talks about right in this transition um, to a clean energy economy. But at the same time, by valuing and investing efficiency, we can save five hundred dollars a household. Well, that's $500 at every household. 
But what's the investment, right? That means that we have to make an investment in every household. And some household investments may be $500 and others may be $5,000. But when you start talking about the communities that are really, really suffering, those investments are going to be larger. Why? Because it, because of the inequities that have they have been suffering for all these generations and now right where we started in 2020, 2021, 2022, we're deciding now we got we got to pay catch up to get to the future that we want to have. Ah, uh, perfect. So now we're talking about cumulative impacts, mm-hmm. and and when we talk about uh, investment in communities or disinvestment in communities, mm-hmm. it's like compounded interest. Yes. Over negative compounded, right? Yes. So over time, this adds up into this um, pit, <laughs> this hole, mm-hmm. and it takes more resources mm-hmm. to fill the hole to level up mm-hmm. than in other communities that have had steady investment uh, or mm-hmm. that have been looked after. Yeah. And, and the connectedness of it all, right? It's not one problem, it's multiple problems, right? So in a community that had a poor community that may have substandard housing, and so you've got issues around, right, just the cost of energy, heating, cooling, and all that other stuff, they are likely also to be in food deserts, which means you've got folks paying a lot of money or not a lot of money, but for very poor quality food, which likely means that their health isn't great because they're not able to eat the way that they're supposed to. Um, they may also not have access to public spaces, parks, et cetera. They may also be located in places that are environmentally right, not good. Like all of that stuff is cumulative. And so when you and I talk about investments, it's not like one investment. It's like a million investments if we really, really want to do this right. And while you and I talk about equity in that way, right, because we're thinking about all the bucket buckets, I'm not sure that other people think of it that way, right? So, because we want to try, we want to solve one problem at the time, right? We want to solve the biggest problem. And I might suggest that, like, sometimes you got to solve all the little problems to solve the big problem. You see what I'm saying? I, I, I do because they're, I just said, they're all interconnected and interrelated. Yeah. So in your view, what are the, what are the implications for um, economic growth? And you've touched on some of them right now. Um, and the distribution of economic burdens and benefits as we transition to uh, this new energy economy given what we've just said about a deficit of investments in some of these communities? Yeah, I think we have to, right, one, be intellectually honest about what's happening in our system and how communities do look different. And I think um, this is not, for me at least, a, a time to be mad about it, right? The whole, this isn't even right, that this is going, okay, like, I don't want to spend any time with that. I really don't. But what I do want to spend a lot of time with is we're in a moment in time where there are lots of companies and organizations who are ready and want to make that investment. And so how do we help them to lean into these communities? Um, And how do we help to support these communities so that they can have a really robust, healthy, um, sometimes dialogue and conversation um, to be able to share what are the things that they need when we talk about engagement, but also that for us in the energy system, that we need to be able to share what is it that we need to do? 
and then figure out how we're going to do this together because we have this larger goal. And who are the other stakeholders and others who need to be involved in this? Um, and we know that, that to, to do it that way makes the, the runway a lot longer and we don't have a lot of time, right? And so if you don't have a lot of time and you need a lot of time, the way you sh shorten that gap is through money, right? More money, more people is how we're gonna, get, like, that's just how that works. We don't have time, right? We didn't start this 30 years ago. We're trying to figure this and we're not gonna start it next year. We're just building plans. But the end date has not been pushed back. The end date is finite. We, we know that we've got to do something by 2040, 2050. So it's not like we can say, well, I'll just wait till 2035 and we'll get there by 2060. That's not going to work. And so we got to think about it that way. That's how I think about it. I, I, I think you've nailed it. I mean, you, in the project management world, it's, it's time, it's uh, uh, money, and mm -hmm. it's quality, right? Yeah. So, so, so then when you, you think, well, if you don't have time, then you, you are going to spend more on, you're going to spend more to get there. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. you have to be concerned about the quality but the speed back to what you were saying at the top of the conversation about the government and these policies and programs being spent, the money being allocated correctly um, and equitably where it's needed most. We also have, when we talk about equity, I just want to to, to highlight rural versus urban and a lot of the disparities that happen because we have increasingly as a function of a market effect, low-income people get pushed out of urban areas that become very expensive and end up either in exurbs or in rural areas. So we have some counties that have high percentages of people with disabilities and high percentages of very low income people because that's where they can afford to live. Mm -hmm. These also places that are un literally underserved back to COVID. Yeah. Um, lack of access to um, healthcare, um, having a preponderance of dollar stores to meet all of their needs mm -hmm. in terms of, of where they go to shop and, and, no banking. The, yep. These are these are, and so we shouldn't be surprised right. if the infrastructure is also underdeveloped or neglected in in these areas. So mm -hmm. we have um, have these regional, urban, rural disparities that also need to be addressed. And and so that brings me to what I'm going to call um, maybe one of my last questions or remarks, and that's around. So when we talk about rural versus urban investment, there's also the behind the meter in front of the meter. For the Alliance to Save Energy, how are you uh, advocating in policy for support of all households and communities in terms of system maintenance? It's not all behind the meter on the household um, mm -hmm. and the homeowner or the occupant to take care of energy efficiency if the distribution system hasn't been maintained in these communities and is underinvested, mm -hmm. they can't participate. It doesn't matter if they do. Yeah. I mean, I think behind the mirror. Yeah. I think that's really part of when I say like, those are the kinds of honest conversations that we need to have about what's wrong 
with the systems. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Once I had a conversation with really who, someone who's an EV advocate and use the example of, yes, we have all this um, investment in charging stations. I think that's awesome, but there are communities who are not gonna be able to adopt a charging station. They can't take on that load. And this particular advocate's response to me was like, yeah, but we could put the charging station at the CVS right off the highway and that's where they could go and charge their car. And to my, my, my remark was like, and that's the point about like when you center equity, that can't be your response, right? Because if equity centered, it's how do we ensure that that community has what everybody else has? Not, oh, my workaround is that they will be inconvenienced because why should we? Um, and so we have to give voice to that, that that exists, right? But we also have to, I think, in terms of policy, create a mechanism for utilities or those who are responsible to fix it and to invest that capital for them to be able to do it. In terms of like for us at the Alliance and behind, in front of the meter, behind the meter, we often hear a lot, um, we term it as active efficiency. You'll, you'll hear demand response, digitization of the grid, you know, all, how, what, all this stuff is kind of under that same bucket for us. Um, but when we talk about equity and kind of the future and demand response, we start with access to broadband. Because if the reality is absent access to broadband, none of you can't have the kind of load control that we're talking about, right? We can't shift the way that we're talking about. And that access, um, if you're in a rural community, may be mill mile access. They may not actually have physical access to broadband. But when you're in an urban community, there may be access to broadband, but they don't have access because it's too expensive, right? And so again, when we're talking about how these policies are tied together, but in this particular case, how one piece of infrastructure absolutely drives another piece of infrastructure. We can't ignore that, right? Access to broadband is foundational to what we wanna do around demand response. That creates an opportunity for us to create other kinds of partnerships because I'm not a broadband advocacy organization, but I'm absolutely interested in, right? Understanding for broadband advocacy organizations what the challenges are to doing what, what, need, what I believe needs to be happening. And what we're starting to see in this particular example, right, are rural co-ops co and others who are actually installing their own broadband because they understand that that's a problem, right? Um, and it was certainly highlighted for us, right, the importance of broadband aside from the energy system. Another example would be education during the pandemic. And how many kids got computers or iPads to go home and learn at home, but actually, Mom and dad don't have broadband service, you know, or that community didn't have broadband service, um, or that tribe didn't have broadband service. And so as we're thinking about, again, this just equitable transition to whatever it may be, you know, and, and I'm few neutral, I don't care what it is, but if we're going to do it, then we got to be real honest about the fact that everyone's not starting from the same place, and therefore the investment is going to be different if we intend for everyone to benefit. Thank you, Paula. And I wanna thank you for participating in our conversation. Thanks I thoroughly me. enjoyed it. It has been free flowing, maybe not incendiary, but definitely <laughs> spicy in, 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 in places. So um, um, the, you know, very much appreciate the candor and look forward to working with you Yes. To, at the Alliance um, on Equity and Energy. Thank yes. you so much. 
Thank you so much for having me and certainly um, appreciate the invitation to join you and do look forward to working with you and the entire team at Illum as we tackle what is sure to be a big problem, but we'll have, you know, that's the stuff we can build legacy on when we fix it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. Everyone, All right. thank you for listening in and have a great day. Thank you again for listening in to our conversation between Dr. Deidre Sanders and Paula Glover. We hope you enjoyed the content and found the conversation insightful and inspiring for the work that you're doing in your organization. Again, this is Current, brought to you by Illum Advising, music by Blue Dot Sessions, and this podcast is produced by Illum's production team. Have a great day, everyone. Talk to you soon.